someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek, broadcasting to you from AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast and Orlando. You can find us on our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio. Uh, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. And if you'd like to email us questions, things you'd like to us uh, have to, if there are things you'd like us to address on the air, what you'd like to know to protect yourself, your family, your small business, always feel free to email us at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. A lot of big news this week. Uh, we're going to have on Patrick O'Neill of cyberscoop.com uh, to talk about some developments of cybersecurity at the State Department. Uh, Cyberscoop, as you all know, is our digital partner. So go on Surfone to cyberscoop.com to see the latest news there. But wanted to start out uh, the show with two particular stories. The first one, right, as everybody knows, uh, a major hurricane has hit uh, the Houston area. There's lots of flooding, a lot of people who need help. Whenever these kind of major natural disasters happen, uh, criminals will often try to take advantage of American generosity, and we are the most generous nation on the planet. Uh, so when disaster strikes, particularly when there are uh, American uh, victims or something bad happens in the United States, there are people who try to take advantage uh, of that generosity. So many of you may have seen emails and fundraising solicitation for uh, Houston-related charitable efforts. Always be sure that those are legitimate emails, those are legitimate organizations. Uh, and this is true, not just an email, uh, but things that you might see in mail or hear on the radio or whatever. Uh, people like trying to divert that money into their own pockets. So, uh, you know, a lot of people often register domains. Uh, in this case, they'll probably say something about Hurricane Harvey uh, in the domain, you know, Hurricane Harvey relief, whatever. Um, and sending out, send out emails trying to get people, you know, who are, who are very well-meaning, want to do right and help out uh, their fellow countrymen in a time of need, end up sending that money to criminals. So what we often uh, say during uh, natural disasters and, and ca uh, catastrophic events like this, uh, generally you want to stick with organizations you know, people you've heard of before, uh, something that hasn't just uh, shown up. Uh, yesterday, right? The, the kind of people who can help in Houston have been there a while, have been doing this for a while. Uh, odds are somebody new isn't going to show up and say, by the way, I've got uh, the right way to get food and water to people who don't have access to that stuff. So uh, pick names uh, and agencies you've already heard of. Do research. Uh, the IRS and the state's attorney generals, almost everywhere, uh, require charities to do a lot of reporting uh, to them to make sure their finances are in order, that they're actually doing what they say to do. So check the IRS, uh, uh, do exempt organization search is what they call it. 
Uh, go to the state attorney general's office, search for these organizations. Guidestar.org uh, and Charity Navigator are two places where you can do research on charities. So uh, do the research before you start sending that money to make sure the money is actually going to the people who need it. Uh, many organizations, some maybe you even heard of, uh, you know, take a lot of overhead. Uh, so uh, they use these events to make their own payroll, not necessarily to make uh, people's lives better. So definitely take the time to figure out uh, and do the research on this organ on these organizations. The tools are out there to do so. So a very important tip is you may be seeing a lot of uh, efforts uh, ramping up to raise money for people affected by Hurricane Harvey. Uh, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. The second story I wanted to cover in our shameless self-promotion segment is something I actually did the past week. Uh, and there's a couple of our uh, articles that talked about it. Uh, Motherboard.vice.com has one. Uh, but going back to Charlottesville and some of these neo-Nazi groups, uh, they're having a hard time raising money because credit card companies and PayPal uh, don't want to do business with them. They're having hard times keeping their domains up, and we've seen a lot of stories of that sort. Uh, but So they've switched their fundraising networks uh, to a degree to uh, what's known as Bitcoin, and let me explain what that is. Uh, it is a, a digital currency, right? There is no tan tangible thing you can put in your hand uh, as far as Bitcoin. Uh, it uses uh, cryptography and difficult math problems. Uh, if you solve that, you get this asset. But people can electronically trade Bitcoin, and these Bitcoins have money. The exchange rate of a Bitcoin is about $4,600 right now. So uh, it allows you to uh, move money around electronically um, and, uh, you know, not tied to any currency, not tied to any government or anything like that. It, its only value is that people think it has value. Uh, and people use this to move money around. They buy things. It's often used in criminal transactions, people not served by the traditional uh, banking system, and now uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Uh, and doing a couple of research, I see them, you know, raising money in Bitcoin or trying to. The interesting thing about Bitcoin is many people will tell you, uh, many privacy advocates uh, will advocate its use. But there's a difference between privacy and anonymity. Uh, the identifier for bitcoins, essentially your account number is what's called a wallet. It is a random alphanumeric, uh, random collection of letters and numbers, right? So you see it. It has no inherent meaning. It looks like a random string. If you know somebody else's bitcoin wallet uh, identifier, you can send money to them. They can send money to you if they know yours. So in that sense, it's anonymous. It is not private because if you have access to the blockchain, and everybody does, you can go to blockchain.info and look up Bitcoin wallets and see who's funding what. All the transactions are public. And so that means from the beginning of time, I can see what wallets are exchanging, what kind of money with who. Uh, so I created a, a little Twitter bot. Uh, called neo-Nazi wallets that will let you see every time a Bitcoin transaction goes to one of these wallets, there'll be a Twitter post. Every day there's a report of how much they've raised, how much they spent, and how much uh, they have on hand, their current balance. Uh, and the interesting thing, uh, why I got started doing that, just poking around out of curiosity, uh, roughly $1.2 million in assets I've found so far just in this system. 
about a quarter million of that belongs to the Daily Stormer, uh, which is a neo-Nazi website, and I'm not using that as a pejorative. I mean, there's swastikas up there, the whole nine yards, uh, and they don't hide it, uh, and had some involvement of what's going on in Charlottesville and certainly a lot of uh, hateful rhetoric after that. Uh, one of the individuals behind that, he goes by the name Weave, W-E-E-V. His wallet has over $800,000. So a lot of money uh, is changing hands for neo-Nazi and white supremacist behavior. Some people have given me some information and leads on Antifa. If there's, there's real money there, I might put up another Twitter bot. Uh, but the idea is these extremist groups that advocate violence, right? We like taking down websites and protests. Uh, but what I do professionally is I go after organized crime and I try to disrupt their ability to make money. Uh, and as a way of seeing if I could use the same tools for this, I've started doing that with, with neo-Nazis. And like I said, if the intelligence supports it, going after left-wing groups that advocate violence. So um, it's very interesting. But, you know, a takeaway for you, if people are saying, hey, you need to look at Bitcoin, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind, there is nothing anchoring Bitcoin's value. It may be worth over $4,000 today. Tomorrow, it may be worth four cents, right? Its only value is that people think it has value. And if one day everybody stopped, that's it, right? So investing in Bitcoin, bear in mind, right? There is no any protection whatsoever for your investment. And the second is many people will say, hey, this is a way to protect your privacy, right? Yeah, there's this uh, random string uh, of letters and numbers as a wallet identifier, but all the transactions are public. And as somebody who does intelligence to investigate criminals every day, this is an immensely useful resource to me. We have gotten people put in prison based on tracking Bitcoin transactions. So, uh, you know, if you're really concerned about your privacy, you know, Bitcoin uh, certainly is probably not the way to go. So we're going to take a short break here, uh, and we're going to interview uh, Lee Farron and have him on uh, and talk about what he's going, going uh, what he has going on, uh, and some uh, the stuff that he's working on. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we're going to take a short break here. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, joining me now is Lee Farron. Uh, he is a freelance national security and foreign affairs reporter and founder of CodeAndDagger.com. Uh, was a reporter for eight years at ABC News uh, and six of those working for the investigative unit at ABC News. And uh, uh, I wanted to have uh, to come on to discuss an article he wrote for CyberScoop.com, our digital partner, about the infamous uh, U.S.-Russia uh, cybersecurity unit that uh, President Trump tweeted about. So thank you for joining us, Lee. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, the article, right, you interview uh, some people and they say the idea is not uh, as uh, ridiculous uh, as it made it sound, right? The, that, that tweet uh, was roundly mocked by a lot of people. Uh, but, but what have you heard uh, kind of digging deeper about this? Uh, so the story was based um, uh, mainly on an interview I did with the former deputy director of the NSA, Chris Inglis. Uh, he left the NSA in 2014 and had been there for almost 30 years. Uh, so he knows his stuff. Um, and, and he his point was basically, you know, the initial reaction was certainly this is silly. The Russians aren't going to play ball with this. They're just kind of uh, taunting us. If anything, uh, this is a ridiculous thing. And, and his whole point was 
it may sound ridiculous, but there's if you play it right, there's little downside for us, mm -hmm. and at least on the international stage, there could be some advantages to it. Well, no, and that that's kind of the thing that that, that I found interesting about it is, uh, you know, based on what I do, uh, you know, I work for uh, doing intelligence on cybercrime specifically, which obviously a good large subset of that points to Russia, and I have from time to time talked to uh, members, uh, officials of the Russian government, and the conversation seemed to go okay, and I think on some issues we might be able to have some conversations, but, but certainly probably trust but verify kind of conversation uh, uh, kind of a mentality right and English uh, was saying basically um, if you agree to the cybersecurity unit uh, for one thing the Americans would have to protect themselves they would have to know exactly what they're agreeing to share uh, with the Russians if anything but the Russians politically could not come to the table empty-handed so they would have to give something to the American side of the team um, that would you know potentially have intelligence value, even if it's misinformation, as long as you're aware that it could be misinformation, mm -hmm. there could be something, something to learn from that, specifically with uh, regard to the, the uh, hacks related to the 2016 election. Right, and I don't think, you know, we're ever going to get real cooperation on the level on, on that, but, you know, people seem to think that because a lot of crime emanates from the Russian Federation, uh, there's complicity, and, and, and maybe there's some looking the other way, uh, but they're also relatively large victims of cybercrime themselves. And at least me personally, my, my opinion is, you know, when you're talking about stealing from normal citizens, right, the kind of geopolitical tensions don't play as much of a role, you, you know, as long as you kind of focus on targeted issues where you can have some agreement. So in mm -hmm. theory, right, you can ask it, have the conversation, see what they bring to the table and maybe get something done. That, that's kind of the whole point of diplomacy. Right. Actually, uh, I wrote a, a different article um, that also was based a lot on what uh, what Inglis had to say, and it was about uh, at what point we'll have some kind of cyber cooperation with the Russians. Uh, he thinks it's a long way off, but uh, him and other experts believe that we have to kind of start lacing up our boots for that. We have to make at least some uh, some movement in that direction because it can't go on the way it is where it's kind of the Wild West in cyberspace for anyone to do anything. At some point, there's going to have to be uh, international cooperation, especially against against uh, criminal groups and uh, terrorist groups. No, I think that's absolutely true. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Um, I think you, you mentioned a very kind of important dynamic, right? And I run into it in my career a lot, right? Is that, you know, we have a global economy, that we have a, a global internet, I can steal money from anywhere on the planet, from anywhere on the planet, but the laws are forced on national basises, right? So uh, if you're a citizen in a non-extradition treaty country stealing money from American citizens, the only thing we really can do is work with the other country. And we do this today with a lot of countries, right? You know, NATO, obviously, uh, in NATO countries, but, uh, you know, there's cooperation in Nigeria uh, to a degree on some of the uh, Nigerian email scams. And uh, we actually have the framework of that kind of an arrangement going on with China now, which was mm -hmm. something President Obama signed with the Chinese president uh, uh, almost two years ago now. Right. And uh, there are two kind of um, other options there. One is what, what uh, American authorities, according to the Associated Press, have done with uh, some Russian you know, suspected criminal hackers is they grab them when they're on vacation. If the mm -hmm. Russians won't hand them over, they'll pick them up in Europe somewhere yes. uh, or something like that. 
Um, and the other part where it gets a little more complex, you mentioned the agreement with China. It, it gets really uh, cloudy once you start uh, getting into the groups that are criminal organizations that made freelance for the government from time to time. There's going to be guys that China and Russia are never going to want to give up, even if uh, they are uh, you know, doing uh, criminal actions as separate from their government work. No, and I think, you know, when you start dealing with espionage and that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, it's about as likely that we're going to give up our spies in the CIA to Russia as they would give up their assets to us. Exactly. And, I, and that's just the nature of the game, right? They've got spies. We've got spies. Uh, eventually, you know, we catch one. We throw them out of the country, right? There, there's rules of the road there. But, you know, you're not really going to come to much mutual understanding about that. That is what it is. But certainly on some matters, uh, you know, cyber crime generally, you know, at least people that are not government affiliated or whatever, uh, there are some shared cybersecurity threats. North Korea has caused problems for both Russia and the United States uh, in cyberspace. Certainly, we could have a conversation about that. Um, you know, uh, I mean, people, particularly now, right, view Russia as an enemy country, and, and the fact is they're just another geopolitical power that has their own, own point of view. Certainly, I don't like some of their policies or whatever, but you know it's uh, they have their point of view and aspirations and they act on it and sometimes that we can come to a degree of cooperation like from time to time we've had with syria and sometimes we don't right right and uh, english's point and in, in the other article was basically we we still don't work well enough with our allies in cyberspace right now so uh, we'd have to we need to shore that up first and then we have to start working out ways that we can work with uh, nations we consider hostile uh, just because the way it is now is not going to work for uh, for the citizens of, of the world. No, and I think that's that's absolutely true. It's a critical point. And, uh, you know, I know it's uh, it's a degree frustrating to me in, in terms of getting investigations and prosecutions going is, you know, why is it taking so long to for the U.S. to talk to the United Kingdom, our closest ally? Let's just get this done. The reality is it, it, it takes an awful, awful lot of time that, you know, I, I don't think it should, but it is what it is. Yeah, and it's also just vastly complex, all the, uh, the especially privacy concerns you have to work out with uh, any kind of international deal. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's much more complicated uh, uh, behind the curtain. So coming to the end of our segment, I want to thank you, Lee, for joining us. Uh, again, uh, you can see that article on CyberScoop. Of, uh, you know, the title is, you know, former NSA official, a joint U.S. cyber unit isn't uh, totally absurd. So, again, uh, thank you, uh, Lee Farron, uh, freelance national security and foreign affairs reporter and founder of CodeAndDagger.com. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back after this. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanak will be right back. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. 
And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Great interview there with Lee Farron. Certainly check out more of his stuff. But wanted to go on to a couple of other stories uh, that are percolating here on the web. The first is from the Miami Herald uh, about election hacking from last year. So if you take a look at it, it's an article from... August 29th here, so a couple days ago, talking about a group of volunteers supervised by the federal government who were trying to do something about the 2016 election, some vulnerabilities they saw, and were stymied based on conflicts between federal and state authorities. Uh, Many state agencies haven't seen their guidelines uh, yet. Um, you know, my read of this article is somebody who's been kind of peripherally involved in this. You know, uh, these kind of things are a little bit alarmist. Uh, certainly concerns about Internet voting, you know, where you can go to a website and cast your ballot electronically, you know, are certainly areas of concern. But uh, a lot of our elect- uh, election system has a lot of built-in checks and balances, many of which are not necessarily technological in nature. Uh, and I know I've, I've met with some election officials myself in the past few months to get an idea of what happened and some of the things going on. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, Russian attempted Russian hacking of state election authorities and what we can do. And I know, I believe we talked about in DEF CON about a month ago, uh, that they had a bunch of voting machines that they tried to uh, find security vulnerabilities with, right? Uh, a lot of these voter, uh, the voting machines, you know, the vendors are in a, wor- uh, in a rush to make them secure, harden them, uh, but a lot of vulnerabilities that people talk about kind of require physical access. Uh, on election day, I'm sure as many of you know, you get a ballot uh, or a touchscreen or whatever, you know, you feed it through a reader, you deposit it, whatever, and the equipment counts for you, but you've got election judges of both parties, you've got poll watchers, you've got other voters. It's probably not entirely plausible that somebody's going to be able to rip the back off a voting machine, go plug in their laptop and reprogram it, all without nobody noticing or challenging said individual, right? Uh, so uh, technologists tend to look as, as technology as its own inclusive domain. So if we, you know, these kind of problems need to be solved technologically, but certainly there's a lot of other uh, checks out there that would prevent these uh, tactics that people tend to overlook. Uh, specifically, one I like mentioning, uh, almost every jurisdiction, and there's 7,000, uh, the number varies depending on who you talk to, uh, different jurisdictions that do different things. But, you know, I know in the state of Illinois where I live, the State Board of Elections does a mandatory audit and recount of uh, ballot readers um, that are what they call tabulation, voting tabulation machines after the election, right? They have the results. They do all the checks afterwards. They do this before they certify the results. It's uh, 3% of voting machines picked at random. So if you're in some county or an election office, the State Board of Elections comes in and says, you need to do a manual by hand recount of these specific machine numbers. So if you were to be able to tamper with the voting machines, you would have to tamper with a small number or know ahead of time, and nobody knows ahead of time, which machines they're going to check. Otherwise, the hand recount's going to say, hey, uh, this candidate got 100 votes, uh, but the machine says they got 500 votes. Something's a problem there, right? So the biggest defense in terms of election security is having that paper trail. You can go back and figure out what happened. It's not fun or exciting or ideal, right, to bring in a bunch of volunteers to count ballots by hand. 
but in uh, the electronic era with all these attempts to manipulate and influence elections, having that backstop in case all other things fail is absolutely crucial. So if you're concerned about uh, voting here in the state of Florida and what people can do to protect it and you know you want to talk to your election official, I'm sure they'll have a conversation with you, but make sure that there's a paper trail, uh, you know, a ballot that's optically scanned or something that's printed out or whatever so that after the election, if they had to, then go back and verify the counts and make sure that they've not been tampered with. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. So segueing from election security, uh, a topic that we keep coming to and I'm sure we'll talk about again. Uh, I know we've mentioned and talked about some of the news that uh, the Department of Defense is making uh, Cybercom a unified combat command. Uh, and what this means is that the, the military has several uh, unified combat commands. Probably the most famous is SOCOM, Special Operations Command, where uh, the soldiers, uh, airmen, and uh, sailors of uh, and Marines uh, of in Special Operations have a unified command structure and somebody overall in charge. Um, there's a lot of them for every particular ge geography, right? There's CENTCOM for the Middle East, NORCOM for North America, uh, but there's several, um, you know, uh, role-based uh, unified combatant commands and making uh, cyber security and cyber warfare one of them is one of the big changes that President Trump has recently made. So there's a lot of people trying to figure out what this means. It's certainly elevating the prominence and importance of these kind of uh, tools and, and bear in mind cyber command while does have to a degree uh, a defensive mission right to prevent military systems and uh, u.s critical infrastructure from being damaged uh, it's clear that their uh, mandate and their focus is going to be offensive in nature when we want to go out and uh, sabotage foreign country stuff get information uh, do whatever is possible in the uh, cybersecurity realm to further our foreign policy aims so as part of this, it's going to be a long process. Uh, currently, Cybercom is uh, the person in command of the NSA is also in command of Cybercom. That's being untangled. Uh, and a lot of effort is going to be focused on training uh, and acquisition. Uh, previously, uh, you know, there's, there's some training, there's some people that have aptitude, but they're really going to develop that capability in-house of not just teaching people how to keep things secure, but making tools and teaching uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines how to breach foreign networks. Uh, to get an idea of what this could look like, there is one example. Uh, the U.S. has not admitted they're responsible for it. It leaked out uh, a few years ago, uh, but we, our government continues to deny it, uh, and that's our involvement with the Stuxnet virus. What Stuxnet did was... Ultimately, it was a tool to sabotage Iran's nuclear program. So it infected machines that ultimately uh, caused the centrifuges that enrich uranium uh, to spin really fast, spin really slow, and then eventually burn out the motors. Uh, and all the kind of diagnostic controls would show everything's normal while the centrifuge is basically destroying itself. And it had a really significant impact on Iran's uh, nuclear weapons program. And that was something that we did because diplomacy uh, really wasn't uh, having the desired effect. So certainly I think more and more we're going to see these kind of things. 
uh, in the U.S. mindset, we tend to focus on military objectives, but we're going to see this bleed over into other areas of the marketplace. We've seen in Eastern Europe in uh, periods of geopolitical upheaval, banks and civic institutions are targeted and knocked offline, uh, and uh, you know rapidly we're moving to a society where when nations want to fight, they're going to disrupt each other's electronic assets uh, and ultimately disrupt their uh, the public's ability to go about living their daily life. So uh, certainly interesting times we live in. Uh, a lot of people are going uh, are concerned about that and, and what that means. Uh, and if you are, just bear in mind for, for things that are really important, what really matter, always have a plan to do something via non-electronic means, right? You know, if the maps aren't available on your phone to figure out how to go from point A to point B, you know, make sure you have an atlas and know where to find uh, find find a map if you need direction somewhere, right? Uh, you know, if checking accounts or electronic banking is down, make sure you know where your bank branch is to get to your money so you can buy groceries. Um, certainly a lot of things like that to keep in mind, but it's certainly not uh, apocalyptic yet. Uh, we've not entered the dystopian era uh, where nations are going to be turning each other back into the dark ages with hackers. So stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We're going to bring on Patrick Howell-O'Neill from cyberscoop.com our digital partner to talk about some big changes at the State Department. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now, Patrick Howell-O'Neill from Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner, talking about some of the stories they're covering uh, the past week. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that uh, caught my attention uh, that you uh, did some reporting on is that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson had disbanded the Cybersecurity Coordinator Office uh, at the State Department. I know we talked about it on a show a few weeks ago where uh, Chris Painter had announced his resignation. So uh, tell us a little bit what's going on. Right. So Chris Painter uh, last month was uh, left the, uh, the State Department. He left the Coordinator for Cyber Issues Office, and that left open a lot of questions. When we discussed last week, uh, or a few weeks ago, rather, when we discussed this news about Painter's departure, we kind of concluded that we didn't know what was going to happen next, and no one really did. Well, the office has now been eliminated. It's been moved to the Bureau of Economics and Business Affairs, uh, which is accompanied with a few million dollars in budget shifting around, um, and we assume some pe- uh, some positions being eliminated. But there are definitely still questions uh, that are open, right? I mean, this is an important office mm-hmm. that's uh, done a lot of wor- a lot of high profile work, right? I mean, the the agreement with uh, with China, right. Obama, and Xi uh, that's probably the highest profile uh, agreement out there out of this office that we know about. Um, so it, it's going to 
it's, it remains to be seen who and you know who these who handles uh, these issues from now on and how they're handled and what this change exactly means. There were some uh, high profile or relatively high profile attempts to save the office by a few Democrats in uh, Congress, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that seems to be going nowhere. I I think that's fair, and uh, you know there's uh, there's more than a couple of Democrats. I I had some you know uh, conversations. Uh, on the background about it, trying to uh, do something and see if we can get them to change course. But uh, no, it, it doesn't look like it. And that that uh, that office is going to be trans- downsized and moved to uh, the Business Affairs Bureau, which uh, will probably greatly reduce the scope of what it tackles. Yeah, um, I mean, so this is, this whole thing has been done kind of um, in the midst of a realignment of the State Department at large, right? Some special envoys have been eliminated or downgraded or reorganized. And so this is one uh, move out of many, um, which means that it hasn't received a lot of attention. Even even among the uh, cybersecurity world, I feel that this has been kind of um, undercovered almost. I know uh, Chris Painter is starting to talk about it. He's He's still doing work in government, but we're not, you know, more questions than answers at this point. Uh, I'm kind of curious what you think about, like, where where these, where these responsibilities might fall now that this office has been eliminated. Um, you know, I know the big thing, at least my interaction with the State Department is with the MLAT process, which MLAT Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. So when U.S. law enforcement wants to get things from U.K. law enforcement or Germany or, or any other country in the world, ultimately it goes to the State Department uh, for cybersecurity cases. So we want to get, you know, uh, some network traffic or, or whatever to facilitate a, a legal investigation, right? Um, with business affairs, certainly I think you know, that kind of flavors it, right, with, with that bureau. I think they'll certainly deal with cybersecurity as it relates to business, right? But And, that and you know, that's an important thing. We talk about, uh, you mentioned in fleeting, right, the agreement that China and the U.S. reached uh, three years ago, right? And that was so that the Chinese government would stop having their hackers steal trade secrets from our companies to give to their companies, right? That very mm-hmm. much was a very strong business concern. I imagine that issue would still be addressed in the new arrangement, but how MLETs are handling are handled with criminal prosecution, how uh, general Internet issues that don't involve businesses, uh, how GD, uh, global data privacy, GFPR, GDPR, the, the European uh, privacy statute, uh, that actually affects our businesses. I'm sure that's going to be de- dealt with, but things that affect consumers, um, a lot of what Chris Painter talked about was ensuring an open internet free of censorship and the like. Those really don't aren't business issues, and we've seen with Google and others that when push comes to shove, doing businesses in places that do have censorship, that those businesses will censor so that they continue doing business there. So I think the advocacy of the open internet uh, probably will be something that definitely goes away. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning that this was uh, established, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. um, who was who, who made a big, um, who made a lot of noise during her stint um, at the State Department about internet freedom, about the mm-hmm. open internet, um, and you can argue this way or that about the uh, about the effectiveness. But this was this was one part of uh, of that initiative out of her. Uh, out of her department. Sure. And I mean, you could argue whether that's appropriate for our foreign policy to include that to tell 
China or Russia that they shouldn't do censorship. Uh, I guess I could see e an argument either way saying that, you know, we shouldn't get in those fights as long as, you know, what they do in their own borders is their own business. I mean, I disagree with it, but I'm not a Russian citizen, so is it really, really my place? So I uh, wanted to cover quickly, we started the show talking about Hurricane Harvey and fishing uh, attacks, uh, and uh, you've got some great reporting up there uh, you've had in the past couple of days. So tell us what you're seeing in terms of what people are doing out there to take advantage of American generosity in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. Sure. So um, it's sadly standard practice now when there's uh, natural or man-made disasters and people are put in dire straits. Uh, the public sees this and wants to help out. They want to reach out through charitable giving and however else they can. Um, and of course, scammers um, and fishers know it. And so they will send out uh, you know, phishing links and they will set up false fraudulent charities to try and trick people out of their money who want to help out as quickly as possible, which makes sense, right? I mean, these people are losing their homes. In many cases, they can't eat. The idea is to get the money there as quickly as possible. Um, and, and, and what I started this, uh, uh, sentence with, I think, is really key to repeat, right? This is standard practice. Whenever there's headline news, uh, scammers and fishers mm -hmm. will try to take advantage of it um, either. So so right now it's about, uh, you know, fishing and charitable giving because that fits the news. But it happens every time. I mm -hmm. mean, when there's news with just, just something that always stands out to me is strange, but whenever there's news with the royal family in Great Britain, uh, or in the UK, rather, it's something that, you know, yep. a lot of people care about. Some people don't, but a lot of people care about it. They'll click anything about it. They'll soak up all the knowledge in the world, and it's such an easy and constant uh, fish bait that scammers will send out there. They'll make up fake news. They'll say X, Y, and Z royal person died or was injured or mm -hmm. said something, and all of a sudden... You've just uh, you've just been hit with drive-by malware or what have you. Right, you know, right, right. It, it happens any time that there's headline news, and natural disasters are maybe one of the biggest um, attractors for scammers because people are so willing to quickly and emotionally part with their money for good reasons. But uh, the way I think you have to approach it is you have to take that extra step and really check in on the charities you're giving to. Make sure you're going to the right uh, websites. Go to, uh, for instance, the Federal Trade Commission has a page on wise giving uh, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey that's mm -hmm, applicable mm -hmm. after any natural disaster in the U.S. at least. Um, you know, make sure you take that extra time to make sure your money gets where it's going. After all, that's the whole point. No, exactly right. And I think I mentioned at the top of the hour, GuideStar.org and Charity Navigator to online services. You can research some of the, the governmental filings charities put out there and, and get some more detailed information, too. So a lot of great information there. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Patrick, uh, as always. Uh, and be sure to check out Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. So, again, thank you for uh, being here today, Patrick. Thank you. So, as always, right, this segues into a point I make. No one's going to protect your privacy or your data except you. Be informed. Take charge of it. Pay attention to details to make sure people aren't taking advantage of you, your generosity, uh, you know, your willingness to be helpful, uh, not just uh, for phishing scams and the like, but uh, criminals do this. There's always an element of deception involved uh, when uh, cyber criminals are trying to take your money. So look for those subtle signs of deception so that you can protect yourself. So coming to the end of our show, if you'd like to visit us, get some more content, cybersecuritytodayradio.com is our website on Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio. My personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. 
Uh, and also, you can get the podcast version of the show. We may put up uh, other podcasts from time to time. Just go to your favorite uh, software and look up Cybersecurity Today Radio. And a big thank you to our uh, radio affiliates, AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Uh, until next week, uh, thank you for tuning in. And this has been Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.